All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. As you're turning there, I'm just going to say a little word from my heart. I, uh, I love that I followed Hayward. I uh, minister with him in a couple different ways in, in BFG, and we do a podcast, and now here, and he's got a great, he's got a great heart and a, just a tenacity to find joy in the Lord. He's a great, great man of our church. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. Be seated. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can come here today and we can focus on you. Lord, we are supposed to focus on you throughout our day, throughout the week, but it is so hard when we have so many other things and we just cherish these moments when we can come together and we have nothing else to do, nothing else to focus on but you and your glory. You are a beautiful God and you are worthy of this. Lord, I just pray that we will be people who learn to love you. Put the words in my mouth that you want, take the words out that you don't. May you teach me as I teach. In your son's name, amen. One thing that always intrigues us as people, I think, is what is the greatest of something, right? People are intrigued by rankings of all kinds. I have a boss who loves to see rankings of anything, vacuum cleaners, basketball teams, horses, whatever it is. We have websites dedicated to it, Ranker. It ranks things. We even have an acronym for things that are the greatest of all time, right? The GOAT, greatest of all time. In sports, we use this constantly. Who's the GOAT of quarterbacks? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> Who's the Olympic GOAT? Who's the NBA GOAT? Now, that's Michael Jordan, period. If you say anything else, repent. Come talk to me afterwards. This isn't new. This is something we've been doing a long time. In fact, turn with me to Matthew 22, real quick. Because in Matthew 22, Jesus gets asked a, a question about what's the goat? What is the greatest commandment of all time? A lawyer comes up to him, and they're testing him, right? We know this story. They ask him a question, test him. It says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They had roughly one commandment for every day of the week, I think. Every day of the year, in fact. What's the greatest of them all? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great 
and first commandment. So now we know it. It's the goat. Now the Jews didn't call it the goat. They called it the Shema. This is something that they would repeat constantly. This is something that they would write on their doorsteps as our doorposts as we read. But for us, knowing that Jesus answered this question, remember, Jesus is God. God, when God was asked, what's the greatest commandment he ever said, he said this commandment. I feel like we should pay attention. He answered it very plainly and very specifically, so we would be wise to know what this command embodies. To do this tonight, let's turn back to Deuteronomy 6. That's going to be our text tonight. As you go back to it, a little background. Deuteronomy 6, Israel has left Egypt. They're about to enter the promised land, and Moses is preparing them for life as they enter the land. The first part of Deuteronomy, uh, I'm sorry, Moses has summarized all that God has taken them through. Taken them out of Egypt, taken through the desert, everything there. Reminded of all the, the people that they have defeated. Moses then reminds them of the Ten Commandments in chapter 5 and how they shuddered when God spoke to them. In fact, they shuddered so much that they said, Moses, you need to talk to God, and then, and then you be the intercessor. You then talk to us, because when God talks directly to us, we feel like we're going to die. So Moses agrees, and he goes to God, and God pleased with their attitude. The Lord responded this way. He said, the first thing I'm going to teach them is how they're to worship me. It is now known as the Shema, and is how to worship God. Now, the central phrase that everything else hangs on in this passage is, you shall love the Lord your God. That's it. That's the central theme. That's the central idea. And everything else I talk about tonight is going to hang off of that. From the central command, God is going to give us three things we must know in order to fulfill this command. Number one, know why you are loving. Number two, know who you are loving. Number three, know how. You are loving. Now I'm almost going to go word for word through these first couple verses. Just follow along with me. So we start off. Hear. Hear. The command to hear means to hear and obey. Put into effect the words that are about to be spoken. Hear who? Hear, O Israel. Israel, God's covenant chosen people from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hear, O Israel, the people Yahweh brought out of Egypt. As Christians, we are God's chosen people. We weren't brought out of Egypt, but we were brought out of this world of sin and death. In fact, go to 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9. Peter's talking about unity, building unity. One of the big themes that happens throughout the Bible in the New Testament is they're afraid that unity would break in the, in the early church. And in fact, today, that's something that we see now, isn't it? Unity is broken all over the place in this church. Not in Riverbend, but in the church, the American church, the global church. First Peter 2.9, he says, But you are what? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a what? A holy nation. These words are to bring back to mind the things of what Israel was. A chosen people, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of what? Not out of Egypt, out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Go to 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. 
And here Paul again is going to connect the Old Testament. He's going to take, he's going to take the prophets of the Old Testament. He's going to connect it to the New Testament Christians. 2 Corinthians 6.16, it says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And here's the key. I will be their God and they shall be my people. When you add this connection to the fact that Jesus repeated Deuteronomy 6 as the greatest command, we see that the command applies to us as the believing community, as the covenant community, the new covenant community that Jesus bought with his blood. We love God. Why? Because we are his people. We are his people that he loved first, right? 1 John 4, 19. We love him because what? He first loved us. Because he first loved us. The second reason why we love God. Back to Deuteronomy 6. So here, O Israel, next the Lord, simply Yahweh, the holy name of God first mentioned to Moses by the burning bush. Yahweh means the self-existent one, the one that needs nothing to exist, yet everything exists because of him. Everything depends on his existence, and he needs none of it because he is self-existent. He's the only transcendent one that the angels continually cry out, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. Turn with me to Isaiah 6.3. We're going to go two verses real quick. Isaiah 6.3, written about 700 BC, we see the seraphim circling around, and what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then let's fast forward 800 years to Revelation 4.8. And John writes, what, what, are the angels, what are the seraphim doing there? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. 800 years, and the angels haven't stopped saying holy, and they haven't stopped today. God is holy. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the point of all of history. He is the reason we are here. He is the reason we exist. We love God because he alone is worthy of our love. 1 Chronicles 16. I know I'm having you flip a lot of places, but there's just so many verses here that I feel are so important for us to learn how to love God. So if you turn 1 Chronicles 16, verse 24. In this verse, David is writing a song of thanks as the Ark of the Covenant is returning to Jerusalem and they're going to put it in the tabernacle. And you almost want to just say this verse with your eyes closed and just focus on the Lord. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. 
Why do we love God? Because he alone is worthy of our love. Back to Deuteronomy 6. So we have Hero Israel. We have the Lord. Now it's Hero Israel, the Lord, our God. You see, Yahweh shows his personal relationship to his people. He is not some transcendent, uncaring, unreachable God, but he is their God. He has a personal relationship with them and is therefore imminent. He is also our God. He is a personal God. He knows the very hairs on our head and he knows us intimately. How about this? God knew every sin and blasphemous deed, every shortcoming and every personality defect before the foundation of the world and before he went to the cross. And yet he came and died knowing your name and everything about you, and he stayed on that cross until it is finished. You want to talk about love? You want to talk about not feeling loved in this world? Well, let me tell you, people may not love you, but... Why do they matter? The God of the universe came down knowing your name, knowing everything about you, and he stayed on that cross to pay for your sin, for his glory, right? We don't want to make it all about ourselves. It was for his glory. He is the point of history. He is the point of creation, yet he still included us, didn't he? We love God because he knows us and he loves us. John 10. John 10, 14 and 15. Very well-known passage. We've been going through the doctrines of grace in BFG, one of the passages we use. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and what? I lay down my life for the sheep. This was before he went to the cross. I know my sheep, and I will lay my life down for them. We love God because he knows us and loves us. Lastly, here, O Israel, the Lord our God. Next, the Lord is one. Now, in the Hebrew, the word here is echad. My throat's a little dry, so I can't get the good echad. Now, in, in the Hebrew, it can actually be used as a singular thing. It can also be used as a unit. It's used in other places as a cluster, like a cluster of grapes. It, it can be a unit. So it can also refer to one unit that is a plurality of pieces, kind of like one god three persons. And in fact, many scholars believe that this is an allusion to the Trinity. And it kind of makes sense because in comparison to the many Egyptian gods that Israel had grown up with, God wants to separate himself by saying he is the one and only. Remember, they had just spent how many years and many generations being brought up in Egypt with those gods. So God has to separate himself. One of the reasons that he had the plagues wasn't necessarily just to judge the Egyptians, but it was also to show the Israelites, I'm better than these guys. These gods are fake. I alone am real. 
I know you've been in Egypt for so long, you've forgotten me. I'm going to remind you how powerful I am and who I am. He wants to show he is the one and only, the unique and ultimately one being, though Trinitarian in three persons. We love God because there is none like him. Isaiah 46, 5 through 10, Isaiah records as God says, Verse 5, Isaiah 46, 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down in worship? Can I remind you of Romans 1 when they, they leave God? They say, no, you're not it. And what do they do? They're going to go fashion their own thing. We're going to make animals gods, things gods. We have many gods today. Many of them are social gods. We make our own gods. That way we can manipulate gods. And God says, no, that's not me. Continuing on, he says, they lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. I love that. It's like a joke. He's a god, but he can't move. It cannot move from its place. It's kind of like the grandfather that doesn't want to move and tells his grandfather, come here so I can smack the back of your head. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things yet not seen saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. We love God because there is none like him. Next, we want to know who we are loving. Who is this God we keep talking about? Who is this Yahweh? Well, we continue on in Deuteronomy. It says, you shall, keeping the command form of this, you shall what? Love. Now, when stated by Jesus in the New Testament, he did use the word agape. Doesn't necessarily mean um, anything special, but the text is going to show the intensity of this love. Agape it can mean something forcefully up to a self sacrificial love. But I will say that the love is in an active and perfect tense, which means we are to be continually, God's chosen people are to actively love Yahweh continually without end. And what does it say? The Lord your God. As the object, Yahweh becomes the central figure of the passage. He is the transcendent God, but he is your God. Meaning he is demanding to have a personal, intimate relationship with us, with you, with me. Our love for everything else stems from and is secondary to our love for and our personal relationship with God. Without a preeminent love for God, you cannot love anything else properly. Because if you elevate it above God, it's in the wrong place and you are not loving it as you should. If God isn't number one in your life, you are loving everything else wrong. And you could even say, if you're not loving it correctly, you're not loving it. If you're not loving your spouse after God, you're not loving your spouse correctly. If you're not loving your kids after God, you're not loving them correctly. If you're not loving your job 
or whatever else you have, if you're not loving it after God, you're not loving it. Furthermore, we must remember to love God. See, we can love the Bible and not love God. Dr. Robert Price claims to love the Bible, and he claims to love the church. However, he's an atheistic skeptic, so that makes it kind of weird. How about Jordan Peterson? We hear about him all the time. He's a great psychologist. He has a lot of great things to say. He motivates a lot of people. He even references the Bible. He thinks it's a great collection of wisdom mythologies to guide one's life by, not theosnustas, the words of God. We can love theology and not love God. The church at Ephesus in, Rome, in Revelation 2 loved theology. They loved defending theology, but they did not love God. We can love good works and Christian service. That familiar story in Matthew 7, where they prophesied and cast out demons and did many mighty works. Think about that. They actually cast out demons. They actually did mighty works. They prophesied, and God said to them, depart from me. I never knew you. You never loved me. I never loved you. We can love good works in Christian service and not love God. If God is not the preeminent and central figure of our love, we're worshiping the wrong object. So do you love God? Do you love the person of God? Not the idea Not the duty, do you love God? Do you desire God above all? Is your love for God the driving force in your life? Do you do your quiet time or come to church tonight or do your duty out of a sense of duty or do you do them because God is beautiful and desirable and you want to spend your time with him? Those of us who are married or dating, you, you're with that person hopefully because they are desirable and you desire to be with them sometimes more than others. But you desire to be with them. Do you desire to be with God? He is the perfect one, always beautiful, always desirable. Do you resist temptation because God is more beautiful and desirable than your sin? There are so many books out there and steps and programs and this and that to get over sin, to, to help break habitual sin in your life, let me tell you, the best way to do it is to ask yourself, do I love God more than I love the sin? And if you don't, then you need to learn more about God. You need to focus more about God. Because I guarantee you, as a person who's had habitual sin, as we all do, when I focus on God, I, can, I see the sin, and I see the sin on one side, I see my love for God, and say, no, I want to choose God. I want to choose God. I desire him more. Because the sin may be desirable for a little while, but it's going to leave me empty. God never leaves me empty. He is worthy. Does God's love for you compel you to have love for others? The reason we love other people, the reason we seek to get along with others within the church It's because God has loved us, and as Paul said, the love of Christ compels me, motivates me, 
almost like it forces me because there's such a desire to do it. Men have done a lot of great and stupid things for love. How much more greater things and wonderful things and kingdom things would we do for love of God? Do you love God or are you just doing religion? Are you just doing religion? Lastly, there are several points that don't pack up. Know how you are loving. Out of our three, know how we are loving. Right? We know why we're loving. We know who we are loving. Now we need to know how we're loving. Back to Deuteronomy 6. It says, with all of us, with our whole self. Now, Deuteronomy 6, the overall picture is your whole self. You don't want to forget the force for the trees here. We, we want to see the big picture. What he's trying to say is love God with everything. But because both the Old Testament author Moses and Jesus both do separate things out, it is worth us looking at the three different parts. All, all is going to describe the totality of each part. We must divest our whole self in every part of loving God. Number one is the heart. This is the will or the volition. A lot of people think the heart is love. No, the heart for them was your will or your volition, your submission. That's why they say the heart is desperately wicked. The soul, this is the emotion. This is what makes a human a human. Your soul, your, your emotions, your humanness, and your might. Now, your might can also be translated effort. And that's why sometimes it also says, with your mind and strength. See, they believe that the mind first happens and then the body follows the mind, right? In so many ways, we even see Jesus that before you commit murder, what do you have? You have hate in your heart. It starts in your heart and mind. Before you're going to move a limb, you're thinking about it. Your brain tells your limbs to do something. So it's your effort your mind, your, your mental effort, your physical effort. These three areas are meant to be centered around God. Almost like a triangle. They're all centered around God. God's in the middle as the object of our love. These three areas can be both perspectives, different perspectives of how we love God, but they're also interrelated. They're meant to be in perfect harmony with each other. Perfect harmony in total fullness. That's the point. All of you and all of all of you. And when we focus on just one of these areas, we fail to love God rightly. Knowledge without emotion or submission, well, that was the church of Ephesus in many ways. A lot of knowledge, a lot of theology. They lost their love. Submission without knowledge or emotion, well, that's the Pharisees, right? Make more rules. Keep them down. Give them a heavy burden. No mercy, no compassion. They didn't care. I mean, they didn't even recognize Jesus, even though he was prophesied in all the old scriptures. And for many of the Pharisees, they had most of the Bible memorized. And yet, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born of a virgin. He goes da, 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 right down the list, and they missed it. Emotion without knowledge or submission, well, 
Unfortunately, that's our charismatic friends. It's the kind of crowd of like Joel Osteen. A lot of, lot of emotion, but it's not directed in the right way. You see, a family, a church is made up of families, and a family is made up of people. And if a person can go wrong, then a family can go wrong, and a church can go wrong. And that means if a person can fail to love God in these three areas, a family can, so can a church. When we are worshiping, we must remember to engage all three perspectives to their fullness and be focused on God. When we teach or lead worship in our home, Bible study, BFG, or from the pulpit, we must learn to stimulate all three perspectives of our audience's worship of God so that it may be full. That's why I would encourage you to do DTP. Learn how to teach the Word of God to your family. Learn how to teach the Word of God to somebody else. Learn how to get all three areas in this. See, you want to teach the Bible in a way that is true to the text, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and evokes a response of learning that stimulates both a greater love for God and a motivation to submit to his precepts. Have you done that? When you teach, when you read, when you sing songs, when you pray, do you engage all three areas? Meanwhile, you make sure all three perspectives are pointing to God, the center and object of our worship. That's how you are loving God with your whole self personally. But then in Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 10, we learn how to do it with our families, with our church as a people, God's covenant people. Look how he says here, after God gives the command, he tells them to do what? Write it on their hearts and then tells them to teach it to their children. Not in just some formal manner, but this is discipleship, right? Look what they're doing. They're supposed to do it when they're in their house, when they're just around talking at meals, when they're walking on the way, when they're doing chores, going into town, doing your everyday life. It's the first thing they hear when they wake up, and it's the last thing they hear before bed. It was to be such an intricate part of their lives that it was kept in their view, right? Right at the front of their mind. They kept it before their eyes continually. It was the lens through which they were to filter the world around them. Right? Their presupposition was that we love God. The presupposition is God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has spoken to us. Let me see how the world looks through those eyes. Again, their children were used to Egypt. And Egypt is all around the church. We need to teach our children how to have the eyes and lens of God. It was the motivation they used to excel more in their lives. It was the reminder of where they got their strength from and a reminder of their deeds. Their houses and cities were signs of their following God. I said before, they wrote this. On the doorpost, they wrote this on their city gates. We do this today, right? I remember as I was a kid that we had, choose you this day whom you will serve. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord, yes. I remember that. That was in our house. It made a stance. It drew a line in the sand. This is what this family is about. 
And so, yes, there is, a, there is a spiritual part to this. There is a heart part to this that you need to put it upon their heart. But there's also the reminders that you're going to have in your house of what they're doing. I remember my college pastor had a sign above his door that said, you were about to enter the mission field. It was on his front door on the inside, right? So as you open the door, boom, you're about to enter the mission field. The simple principle here is discipleship. We've got to get better at discipling our children in the church as a whole, as a whole in America, in the world. I'm so glad we've decided to do discipleship here. I'm so glad that we're emphasizing it. You see, children have always held a special place in God's heart. Now, I like this because... um, Pastor Brian kind of gave you a prelude to my sermon. I feel like every time I tell uh, Hayward, every time that I teach, it seems like the verses that I use are then used in the service. So it's almost like they're listening to me taking notes. But let's look at some of these verses again. Go to Mark 10. Children have always held a special place in God's heart. We'll stay in Mark. Mark 10, 14. Right? The children were trying to come to Jesus. The disciples were rebuking him, trying to keep him away. And what is Jesus? Jesus saw it, and he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. Children have a special place in God's heart. Flip back a chapter to Mark 9, verse 36. Right? Now we're having a fight. We're having a fight. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? We're getting our moms involved, your James and John, going to Jesus, saying, hey, can you put my, my sons on your right and left? And the others are getting upset, and there's, there's this power struggle, and Jesus kind of looks around, and he sees a child, and he goes, you know what? I'm going to teach him a lesson. He took a child and put it in him, in the midst of them, taking him in his arms, and he said to them, verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is saying, you're going to take this faith that a child does. I think about it. Children are used as the model and type of faith we are to have. A faith that has nothing to offer yet desperately seeks to be with Christ. I have a child. I have two. Right? And when they want me, they just put their arms up. Daddy up. Daddy up. Daddy up. Daddy up. They don't give me a dissertation of why they deserve to come up. They don't give me all the reasons why they're better than, while Kiana's better than her brother, or while Caden's better than her sister, why you should have me up versus them. They just want up. They want to be with me. And isn't that how we're supposed to come to God? Not with a dissertation of everything we've done, not with all the skills that we have, or why we're better than another person. We're simply supposed to go, Abba Father, I want to be with you. That's the faith, nothing to offer. Singularly focused, tenacious, right? When a, when, a, when a toddler wants to go in your arms and you try and get away, they follow you, right? Tenacious. How about Mark 9, 42? It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, be careful, because in context here, God is warning against putting anything in the path of children, but children of faith, meaning young believers, right? This doesn't necessarily mean children of a physical age. 
This is children of a spiritual age, okay? Let's be accurate. But consider this. 85% of the Christians that were raised in church will make their profession before age 18. This means the majority of the new believers that exist in this church are down there and down there. God loves children and is adamantly opposed to anyone that would cause them to stumble. I mean, the picture is this. Okay, let's go back to the picture of, of my toddler coming to me, running to me. Daddy up, daddy up, running to me. Now imagine if, as you watch them running to you, imagine if somebody tripped them. What's the first thought coming into your head about that person? <laughs> you can repent. I know I had to. <laughs> how's that father going to react? I know how I'd react. I would not suggest doing it to my children. The message is clear. God takes discipleship of our children seriously. Go to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. Verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now that word discipline, it's a great word. It's a word when I hear the word discipline, it's paideia. It's what I think about when I think about our school. It's a Greek word used for raising the children of aristocrats or free men that focus not only on the subject matter of schooling, but also on the socialization into the customs of the culture. See, they said, not only do you have to have the knowledge of a free person, but you better act like it. And isn't that true? Not only do we need to give our children the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of who Christ is, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the Bible, but we have to show them how to act like Christians in this culture. The question then is, are we raising our children in a way that they know the subject matters from a biblical worldview? Are we teaching our children logic and critical skill, thinking skills from a biblical perspective? One of the things I hear working in the young adult group that is so dangerous is when parents are sending their kids to college and they go, all right, they're going to teach you how to think, and they're sending them to a secular college. You know what you're telling them, how dangerous that is? We're going to go let the world teach you how to think. No, church. We teach them how to think. And we teach them how to think as God has taught us to think. We need to think through a biblical worldview. We are the ones that should be teaching our children logic and critical thinking skills from a biblical perspective. Are we showing our children how to live as, as a free person in the kingdom of God while they're in the context of this current cultural climate? Now remember... The address in Deuteronomy 6, yeah, Ephesians 6 was fathers, but the address in Deuteronomy 6 was what? Here, O Israel, the nation. And then you drop down and he, and he says, teach this to your children. Yes, parents are on the front line, but it is the responsibility of all of us in the covenant community to be teaching our children. Now, this support can range from formal teaching to maybe discipleship on the side. Maybe you're just giving money so that someone can afford to go to Riverman Academy and not have to go to public school. But we must remember, if we aren't 
actively involved in discipling our children, the world is more than willing to disciple them for us. Remember, they do have a discipleship program. It is the school system. It is the education system that they have. It is the media that they have. They want to constantly flood their minds with their worldview. Who's going to teach them the truth? The world doesn't have truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Are we teaching them about Jesus, the truth, and the truths that he said in his word? The world desperately wants to teach them how to think, reason, and act as a slave to sin. There's no neutrality. Jesus says, you're either for me or you're against me. If you're not teaching them about Jesus, you're packing their bags to hell. I borrowed that one from Pastor Scott. In all this, remember, here's a quote from H.B. Charles. He says, remember to let the main thing be the main thing. There are many issues within the Christian life that we can be sidetracked by and forget the main thing is that we love God with everything that we have. When we focus on loving God on his terms, right? That's the important part. We don't love God how we want to. We love God how he wants us to. On his terms, given to us in his word, the Bible. We then set a trajectory in which all the other issues either line up or fade away. Some issues aren't worth pursuing. We only have so much time in this world. And God's told us the goat. Love God. May we be people that desperately want and desperately seek to love God with everything that we have. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you alone are worthy of our love. You alone are worthy of our praise. You alone are worthy for us to get in these types of groups and sing and teach. All with the point of view, Lord. I pray that we will learn to love you. Teach me to love you more and more every day. I pray that you'll dismiss us with peace and that you will help us to love that. We can only love because you teach us to love and you put that love within us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.